Good afternoon and good evening to the rest of you. Welcome to episode number 40 of Bitcoin Magazine Live. We are simulcasting this both on Twitter spaces as well as on our YouTube channel. We're joined today by our guest, Scott Melker of Wolf of All Street fame. Scott, thank you so much for joining us today. My pleasure. Thank you guys for having me. So I want to kick things off to give a little bit of background about you to our viewers who maybe aren't as familiar with you. Um, you invest in Bitcoin, you invest in altcoins, you invest in the stock market. You are an investor of everything and anything, correct? That's absolutely true. And so can you define for us what for you is the difference between Bitcoin and crypto in general? I actually hate the term cryptocurrencies, and I think that uh, it's really a misnomer to, to use it and that we need to eliminate it immediately. In fact, Fidelity put out an incredible report maybe a week or 10, maybe two weeks ago that said Bitcoin first, and it echoed a lot of my thoughts on how people should approach this market. I think there's Bitcoin, and I think there's somewhat everything else. I think the name cryptocurrency, like I said, is a misnomer because most of them are not currencies. They're not pretending to be currencies. They're not trying to be currencies. They don't, they're not in any way, shape, or form reflective of what a currency should be, right? And so in my opinion, there's Bitcoin. You can take it as the store of value, inflation hedge, digital gold, whichever, whichever narrative works for you. And then everything else starts to fall in another bucket, which to me is more like venture capital, tech investments, Web3, call it whatever you want. And when you're able to mentally separate the two, even though when you're saying you're separating one in thousands, but when you're willing to able to separate the two, you're, I think your instinct towards maximalism starts to sort of disappear and make a lot more sense. I always sort of joke that like, if you're a passionate gold investor, you probably don't have an emotional hate towards Amazon stock, right? Like what they're, 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 they shouldn't be compared. They're not the same. And so I think that that's the approach that people should take when it comes to crypto. So to me, there's Bitcoin and there's everything else. That's not disparaging everything else. I just think they're two different buckets. I love that. And I love that analogy of, of explaining essentially, look, they're both viable investments, gold and Amazon, but they function in two very different ways. They give you two different types of returns. Talk to us a little bit about what you view as gold in this scenario. I'm just going to give you as Bitcoin. What is your Amazon? What is something that you have an eye on that you really like right now? So I go pretty far down the risk curve. I mean, I've at this point over the years, I've accumulated positions in you know well over a hundred coins, even if it's just the dust that's left over from a successful trade that I closed three years ago. It's always my belief that you should scale in and scale out of things. And if you're scaling out at a tremendous profit, that you should always keep you know, what we sort of refer to as a moon bag, something that uh, just in case in 10 years you've accidentally invented, invested in the future uh, Amazon that you didn't miss it by selling that last 10% for profit, sort of playing with the house's money. But for me, like if you're talking about obviously gold and then Amazon, you're going to just make the natural step down to Ethereum, right? I think that uh, uh, over time, I can just talk about myself. I always believe that my portfolio should be 70% Bitcoin, 15% trading, 15% cash, sort of a classic coming from stocks and coming from other markets. That's always the way I approached it. Cash to buy the dip, 15% in your everything else, 70% in your long-term holds, which represented just Bitcoin. For me, that 70% now, like I said, it's the dust from all those other trades, but also heavily an investment in Ethereum. So I'm, you know, I'm more like a kind of, you know, 60, 40 Bitcoin to Ethereum split within that. And then all the other things. And then from there, I think it depends on your risk tolerance, your knowledge of the market, how long you've been here, how uh, emotionally stable as a human person you are, because uh, can you, you know, can you really, can you really sit through these massive volatile swings and, and tolerate them? But so for me, like I said, I mean, I've got, you know, hundreds of coins, but most of them represent you know, a fraction of a percent of my portfolio. I think as a, a, a finance guy myself, or as I like to claim myself a finance guy, I love the idea of you always got to have that moon bag. Uh, thank God I didn't sell all my Tesla shares that I had bought in college. Otherwise I would be kicking myself to this day. 
I also enjoy and appreciate your strategy where you have, you have it broken down, where it's long-term investing, which is essentially turned into your Bitcoin bucket. You have a portion of this portfolio that's for trading. When you just, and then the rest is a cash position. Is this specific to just your, um, I guess I'm just going to call it your crypto portfolio, or is this your overall investing portfolio and strategy where in a stock portfolio, you'd also have 70% long? Exactly that. Okay. Exactly that. My, my, my approach is that each one is its own bucket, that you have 70% that you're investing in and you're smart enough to realize that you're not going to probably beat the market. And so you should only trade with about 15%, right? And so even if you are a God tier trader and you've beat the market for a year or two years at a time, it's very hard in my opinion to believe that you'll be able to do that for 20, 30, 40, 50 years. I mean, and I think it's important to remember that most people who have acquired generational wealth over time have never looked at a chart, don't know that technical analysis exists, have never even thought about trading. All they've done is simply get money into a market and let inflation basically do the rest, right? Get your money into assets and wait a really long time and don't cash it out and you'll probably end up rich. Uh, so I'm not trying to overthink that. Right. So it's always been my position, 70% uh, investments, 15% for trading. Now, listen, in the crypto space, in the crypto market, if we're in an epic bull run and it's a full on alt season, I ratchet that up big time. Right. I'll be up 50, 60, 70% that I'm trading with, with the idea of increasing those investments and getting out when the, when the time is right. So I, th I mean, you know, part of risk management is knowing when to be in and when to be out. So that does change, but I generally like to keep it that way. And the 15% cash is really, really important. And people don't consider that. And I'm not just talking about like have some cash on the side that's not in your portfolio. I have USDC in my crypto portfolio that I try to keep around 15% specifically. It's earning yield, but then I can buy the dip. And what people don't realize, if you're trying to stack sats, a lot of people miss this, right? Because now people have started really aggressively trading on USDT pairs as, a, as opposed to Bitcoin pairs. But if Bitcoin dumps really hard and you're holding USDC or dollars in your portfolio, they behave like an altcoin and actually mitigate and reduce the loss of sat value of your portfolio. Right, Because if Bitcoin's going down dramatically and you're holding dollars, the buying power of those dollars for more Bitcoin is increasing and therefore your Bitcoin position is dropping less. So it effectively is a hedge. Really important for people to realize. And if you don't have cash in your portfolio, you can't buy the dip. One of my favorite lines from this show is when we had Greg Foss come on and say the worst Bitcoin allocation is 0% and the second worst allocation is 100%. I think that hammers home what you're saying about having something to play with when you have those dips. I want to unpack a little bit of what you just said, talking about you know the idea or notion that if you hold for an extended period of time, essentially that old saying of time in the market, not timing the market. Right. When when we see inflation ramping up the way it has been over the last year now, and I I believe I'm in this minority that it's not over. We're going to see this double-digit inflation in the coming months, if not by the end of this year. How is this affecting your investment strategy when at the same time, the market's actually in a decline? Some may call it a bear market. Some may call it a pullback. What are you seeing as far as that strategy and that sort of approach given the market conditions? Plug my nose and buy the dip and pray. I think that that's always my approach. I think that people should be dollar cost averaging and not letting narratives dramatically affect the way that they approach the market. Like you said, time in the market is more important than timing the market. So if you're thinking about 10 years from now, and by the way, when you say that, you're not saying uh, six months versus three months, right? You're literally saying decades versus a year or months, very long time horizon. If you're talking about investments, at least for me, I'm 45 years old, right? So like, the Russia-Ukraine war or the immediate CPI print in a month are irrelevant factors when thinking about a long-term investment. So I'm just going to keep buying stuff, right? And, uh, and I can give you an example. I finally got out of debt in like 2007, late 2006, early 2007, and took it as an opportunity to start investing again. I started buying SPY, dollar cost averaging, retirement account, right? Basically like tracking the S&P. So obviously I started doing that monthly coming into a oh, global recession, right? the great recession. So I was buying, I was buying, it was going up and all of a sudden I was deadly underwater. Like every penny I'd put into the market had evaporated. I was down 50%, you know, like everyone else. 
I didn't change my automated buying strategy at that time. And that caused me to buy the dip. I was underwater for, I don't know, seven, eight, nine years. I don't remember, seven years, eight years. But three months ago, every single spy purchase I'd made in my entire life since 2006 was in profit, right? So yeah, if I had panicked at any of those moments and talked about countless narratives, if I'd stopped buying because the mortgage bubble popped and subprime crisis, I would have missed the opportunity, the generational opportunity to buy the stock market lows, right? And so, yeah, I also bought the highs, but the highs are still pretty close to where price is now. And I've got years and years of buying at lower prices under my belt. So listen, first of all, like you talk about inflation print, inflation's already double digits. Don't let like the, the, the number they tell us, and I'm not a conspiracy theorist, it's just not the number. Like they, they literally in January were like, well, we're going to change the way that we calculate this, right? <laughs> we're we're going to just change the metric. They're moving the goalposts to make the number a certain way. I think anyone who has bought, I don't know, gas in the last year, or food in the last year knows that prices are up more than 7%, right? Um, it seems pretty logical and obvious. So like, yeah, Bitcoin is not, acting as an inflation hedge month to month at this exact moment, but you believe long-term that buying a deflationary ass asset is going to be beneficial. I mean, I salivated these dips. It sucks seeing your portfolio go down, but uh, you know, if you can zoom out and say, what is this going to look like in a year, five years, and think that way, I guarantee these are going to be great prices. I love that optimism. I love the approach and I love the strategy and conviction to stick with your the rules that you have in place. I'm a little curious to know if you consider yourself more of a growth type investor or a value investor when it comes to investing strategies. Honestly, man, I have a huge mix of both. Um, and I, so it's hard for me to define myself as such. <laughs> it's, you know, at this point when you're so heavily allocated to crypto, you know, I used to also believe until maybe early 2020 that crypto shouldn't be more than 10 or 15% of your portfolio. And I just never reallocated after that because I was so infuriated with watching, you know, 40% of the money ever printed being printed in those months, you know, after sort of the COVID crisis. And I became, I guess, it would be fair to say I became a little more of an emotional investor about Bitcoin just because I was fed up with uh, what I was seeing from the Fed and from, from central banks. So it's hard for me to be like, yeah, I only invest in like dividend stocks that are long-term you know, value, but when I'm like so heavily in shit coins and, and Bitcoin, of course, right? And, and listen, I've gotten slaughtered in the stock market of late along with anyone else who's been invested in tech. But like, I think long-term, long-term, do you want to be invested in the dinosaurs that with a low dividend or do you want to be in the companies of the future that are going to appreciate, you know, 50, 100x, uh, assuming they play out. So I would say a mix, but I'm, yeah, you know, I would say I have a pretty risk on portfolio in general. Uh, I, I can appreciate that. I mean, you can't make money without taking some risks. So uh, scare money, that, don't make money. Exactly. That said, though, it is always important to calculate what risk tolerance you yourself have as an investor. What are some of the sort of calculations that you make personally to gauge how much risk you're willing to take on in a portfolio at a given time? Yeah, well, it, that changes with age and portfolio size, right? So I think that's a very, uh, the, the conventional wisdom of, advertise, of investing has never changed, right? Like it, if you bought a mutual fund when you were 25 that was targeted for your retirement that rebalances, you know, a heavier, listen, 60, like bonds are dead, but like that theoretically rebalanced between stocks and bonds and more risky and less risky assets over time, that's still the correct approach. The older you get and the more money you have, the more you have to worry about storing your value and protecting your assets and the less you have to worry about growing, right? So for me, like I've moved a lot of my money into what I consider stable assets over the past few years as I've gotten it. Like I, I don't sell Bitcoin, but I've sold a hell of a lot, I've traded a hell of a lot of different crypto and then moved that money into real estate investments, private equity, hedge funds, things like that in and outside of crypto. Right. And so, like, I feel like at this point, the money that I'm kind of playing with in crypto and the stock market, I can take that more risk on approach that I sort of talked about. Because if crypto goes to zero, I would survive. Right. I don't think it's going to. There's zero part of me that believes that, but uh, I'll be okay. 
I can take a lot, could take a lot more risk when I was in my twenties than I can with two kids and a wife and bills and the life in, in my forties. Right. So I, it's just, I think for each individual, it's very, very important. I mean, you shouldn't be investing if you're in debt, right? There's some very basic things that people get out of debt first, then start investing. And I would say if you're young and can afford the risk, yeah, you know, go a lot heavier in crypto than you would have. But if you're getting older and you actually have a portfolio to play with, get some of it into more stable, you know, investments and then uh, slowly ratchet up the risk. I do want to push back on on the if get out of debt and then start investing as someone who unfortunately still is in debt thanks to our current uh, college education system and still paying off my student loans. Uh, silly me, that's a... That was my own foolish decisions. However, there are strategies around that. I mean, I won't bore everyone with the details of it, but as simple as, like you've said, getting a, putting the same amount of money that I have uh, in debt or that I owe for my student loans into the S&P 500. Obviously, you have to be a little bit careful about timing and whatnot. Buying in right at the top before a bear market doesn't really work, but being able to ride that wave up and using those returns to pay off your payments over time, you do you, there are strategies to get around having debt? Sure. I, I should be more specific. Don't have high interest debt. Like de de I know people that have, you know, are paying 20% on a credit card and are buying, you know, money instead of paying off that debt. If you have a student loan that's running at, you know, three, 4%, I don't know what it is, and you can earn 10% yield parking USDC on any given platform, then of course you do that because it's a simple math decision, right? I will take like people, maybe, you know, this is bad advice for certain people at certain points in their lives, but I'll literally take on any cheap debt that I can get right now. Like if someone's going to give me a loan on anything that I own for three and a half, four percent for 30 years, first of all, let's say you're, let's just throw a number out. Like, let's say your payment on some loan is $3,000 a month, right? You take a loan, you get the cash out, you have a three, $3,000 a month. Well, $3,000 a month today is a lot different payment than $3,000 a month 30 years from now. So locking in a payment, a fixed payment over a long period of time, that's how rich people have gotten rich, right? That, that's how you do it. And if you can reliably, so you used to be able to have a savings account. That was a thing when I was a kid, right? Um, not a thing anymore, but it's I love, not. I'll take, if you can give me debt 3% or something and I can park it and get 10% in USDC, I'm literally free money, free money with a payment that's going to decrease over the next 30 years. Right. So fixed payment, low interest debt is really, I mean, that, it, listen, if you talk to like, I talked to Michael Saylor, you know, on my podcast a couple of times and he broke down this whole thing. It's mind blowing when you listen to him talk about it. Yeah, it's like you, you get this, you buy this, you buy this, take a loan against it, take a loan against it, refinance that loan, refinance that loan's loan and whatever. And it was just like, and you never sell anything. Just never sell anything. Just take loans, take loans, take loans. So it really depends on where you're at in your life, I think, and, and how you can structure that. Like if you're carrying 20% credit card debt, you have no business like uh, spending that money on other things. My fellow clubs, the Bitcoin conference is back. Bitcoin 2022, April 6th through the 9th is the ultimate pilgrimage for the Bitcoin ecosystem. The Bitcoin conference is the biggest event in all of Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies. We're leveling up and making this bigger and better than ever. I'm talking straight to the moon with the four day long festival in the heart of Miami at the Miami Beach Convention Center. This has something for everyone. Whether you're a high-powered Bitcoin entrepreneur, a core developer, or a Bitcoin newbie, Bitcoin 2022 is the ultimate place for you to be with your people and celebrate and learn about the Bitcoin culture. So make sure to go to b.tc forward slash conference to lock in your official tickets and use promo code Satoshi for 10% off. Want more off? Pay in Bitcoin and you'll receive $100 off general admission and $1,000 off whale pass. Those are stackable. So go to b.tc forward slash conference and attend the best conference in Bitcoin history. It, genuinely speaking, if you have 20% like APY on your credit card and you have debt, you need to pay that off before you do yes. anything. Like literally do that first. Yes. Do that first, please. I, I love the clarification too about the low interest type of debt that is especially with inflation what it is now three thousand dollars today 
$3,000 next year, if anything, the future value of money continues to decrease to a level Correct. where you almost want to pull up all of your cash flow for this year. I personally have been trying to do something like that. And whether Definitely. I put it in Bitcoin, whether I put it in other investment vehicles, whether I start a business with it remains to be seen. But I, I genuinely believe that my paycheck that I receive today versus the paycheck that I'm going to receive in December, barring a raise, hint, hint, um, it's going to raise. <laughs> it's going to it's going to have less of a buying power and as a result we need to maximize what we can and for those of us who are paying attention and have that information on hand we should be capitalizing on it while the opportunity is still there i'd love to go back a little bit now and, and talk a little bit about some news and how that's affecting the way you're looking at things my understanding and correct me if i'm wrong you're not really looking at the news and making decisions based on that for your long term strategy but what impact does news have for your short term trading strategy i don't even know what news is accurate or false so i basically just ignore all of it at this point and i don't see how you can like reliably make any financial decisions i kind of joke about this all the time any financial decisions based on anything that you read in the mainstream media or I don't know where you would get news that's reliable, to be honest, right? I mean, it, this Sunday, I think it was two days ago, as an example, right? Uh, uh, if you believe that Bitcoin trades on these things, whatever, it was Putin and Biden are going to have a summit and things started going up. And then like 20 minutes later, it was like, but maybe it's a probable summit and things start going down. Then maybe the summit will have a summit that's going to summit around the summit. And it's all complete nonsense. Like... Trading on news cycles when all of the news is opinion is completely impossible in, to me, right? Now, there, that wasn't always the case. I mean, the biggest kind of, I, I bought three weeks ago or something when Bitcoin was really low and the market had crashed. I mean, I bought everything that wasn't nailed down. It was my biggest buying week basically in history. Not because I thought that that was definitely the bottom because I thought it was like a bottom and that things will be higher in 10 years. Right. But that, that wasn't because of the news necessarily. It was because I saw that sentiment was so bearish. When I start seeing how everything's going to zero and new world order and Bitcoin's going to be the global reserve currency by 2023 and all these other things, I just start buying shit like indiscriminately, you know? And, and so I think that we have the benefit, forget news. Now we have the benefit of very clear social sentiment on social media about how things are going. And I think that is probably more tradable intel than some story that is completely false, is proven false the next day, is never retracted or never apologized for. And just sort of the way I'll tell you, like the last time that I bought that heavily was the day I'll never forget. I was at my friend's 40th birthday party in New York city and all my friends were like Wall Street dudes and shit. And Brexit was announced. And it was like everything dumps, like 30%, 25%, 15%. And I was like, first of all, this is going to take literally years to play out. Like nothing's happening tomorrow. Netflix is not worth 35% less today because England is going to Brexit. You know? And so I love those uh, news like that. So I'm not trading the news. I'm doing the opposite, right? It's what I, I like when everybody's overreacting in either direction. And I like to buy the thing that was sort of the baby thrown out with the bathwater, right? Like Facebook dumped. And so all these other companies that have literally nothing to do with Facebook dump, uh, buy some Amazon, you know what I mean? And things like that. So uh, I don't really play the news unless it's about just seeing an overwhelming reaction to the news. So I'm more playing the reaction than the news itself. So it sounds like you use the news as like a contrarian indicator are there other sort of indicators that you like to pay attention to? I love the strategy of when everyone's running away, that's when you're running in. That's something that I'm trying to get better at. I know that my emotion, it's, it's, it's very challenging. Um, I do also want to ask you, how do you get over that sort of emotional hurdle of, holy shit, all I see is red. I was trained to never double down when you're going down. So the whole buying the dip strategy took me years in Bitcoin to like finally get over my ego and do it like that. What are steps that you took to get over that? Uh, I lost so much for so long that eventually I became numb to losing money. I know it sounds so stupid, but like I've gone broke so many times or come close that eventually you just either have to say, I can't do this anymore, or I'm going to emotionally detach from it in some way, shape, or form. Obviously, the bigger your portfolio gets, the losses as a, on a percentage basis become smaller. Even if it's the same fixed amount, it becomes easier to sort of 
stomach. It's never easy to lose a ton of money. And anyone who tells you they're a complete robot, I can be a robot about my trades, but I can't be a robot about my like entire net worth tanking 60% a day, which has happened in crypto many times, you know? Um, and so, but what you have to do is I, I, I've joked many times on Twitter and, and YouTube and such where I say like, if you're at all new here and I'm talking about first few years, your best trading strategy is probably counter trading your own first instinct. Like that minute that you are puking and ready to sell everything after you've held for this long, literally buy. Like if you're, everything in you is saying, I need to sell right now, this is going to zero, buy something, right? If you can do that, I, I'm almost guaranteed that you're going to be very successful. Oh, and by the way, you want to know what the greatest top indicator in history is that I've experienced so many times and so have many other people because I've shared this? Please. The day that you take a screenshot of your portfolio to brag to someone about it, especially if it's your wife, right? <laughs> nothing, nothing is a better top indicator than you showing your wife how fucking smart you are, right? And I've experienced it. Oh my God. I literally, it was the day, even, even December 3rd, I showed her the portfolio. We saw what Bitcoin did on December 4th, right? It dumped like massively and which was, uh, you know, during Art Basel, when all of us, like half of the crypto world was at one FTX party and nobody had phone service and Bitcoin went from like 50, mid 50s to 42 in like two hours or something. And I literally, I just showed her the portfolio. I was like, oh, we're fine. I know Bitcoin looks kind of weak, but it's fine. We're fine. It's fine. Right. And uh, no, it wasn't that fine. You know? Um, and uh, so, yeah, those, but it, it's a joke and it's kind of a meme, but it's a hundred percent true. And if you can identify them, those things in yourself, you can effectively counter trade those emotions, but it never gets easy. The fact it's just being able to train yourself to, you know, if you're really buying near the bottom, you should literally feel ready to puke when you hit the buy button. It should be feel terrible and uncomfortable. It's a really a great signal. So I, I want to, we will dive into some charts. So for those of you who are listening in on Twitter spaces, be sure to click the link at the top and come on over and see our pretty faces over on the YouTube stream. Um, but I do want to ask you beyond just sentiment, beyond just your gut, is there anything in the charts that you're looking for? Are you, are you drawing down trend lines? Are you looking at support or resistance to try and help yourself sort of negate some of that risk and how much emphasis do you put on these things? Listen, I, I, I love charts, you know, like I chart everything I can possibly find all day long, every day, because I think it's a fun pursuit, but I'm the first to tell you that technical analysis is a art more than a science and that it's a way to make education, educated guesses and justify a stop loss. Right. So uh, to me, it's a risk management tool more than it is a crystal ball. But that said, I've been through every strategy, probably that you can use for technical analysis. I've been like an Ichimoku cloud guy, supply, demand, support, resistance, OBV, RSI, Elliott waves, you name it. I've been a maximalist of all of them at some point. And then I took all that shit off my chart and went back to just drawing simple lines. And, uh, and I love looking for bullish and bearish divergences with oversold and overbought RSI, like the most simple uh, strategy. But for me, it's something that has worked over time. It's generally effective. And once you realize that like no indicator is going to tell you what's about to happen with price, you try to find the simplest way for you to justify where you're going to put your stop loss, where you're going to take profit. And it gives you actionable information, whether it's literally because of unicorn dust or like something your three-year-old said to you that morning, at least it gives you a justifiable reason to say, this is where I'm going to put my stop loss. This is where I'm entering. I can then back sort of calculate the position size based on the size of my portfolio. Say I want to lose 1%. That's based on your stop loss, right? And then from there, it's about uh, actually being able to sit there and watch your stop loss hit, right? Because it's going to happen and not moving it and blowing up your entire plan. Do you think though that uh, to a degree, like I get teased about this a lot, technical analysis is just astrology for dudes. Is, is this... <laughs> Is this, does this fall in line with your thesis that it is really just more art than science? I mean, you just get canceled because I know girls that do technical analysis and that shit is sexist. <laughs> um, so, and I know dudes who like astrology. So, no, I, but I think, yes, the sentiment of that is correct. It's something that we as traders obsess over, but should be aware is not 
science. It's not science. If it was science, we'd all be gajillionaires because you would say this is the level where price has to bounce. Science, right? It's like a, and so we, we would all be super rich. I am going to be pulling up right now the S&P 500 chart to share. Uh, we're going to start there first. I personally tend to Sweet. follow either the NASDAQ or ARC, but given your sort of background, the amount of time you've invested in SPY, I kind of felt like, so we have a daily chart right now. I'm extending it out to pretty much the start of 2021. So a little bit more than a year. I'd love your initial thoughts. This right here is our 50 day. The orange line right here is the, no, actually I lied. Yeah, the, no, the, the, the bottom line's 200 for sure. No. I know that line anywhere. Uh, the orange is the 50 day and then the pink, yeah. I prefer the 21 day exponential. Uh, so those are the three, three lines I like to use. What is, when you look at this chart right now, first glance, especially given sort of where we are below the 200 day, below all these main moving averages, what is your sort of instinct and what do you see first? Uh, I would say that it's definitely problematic being under the 200. I mean, just glancing as far as you've pulled it back there, which is not that far, but back middle of next year. I mean, that's a mean reversion to the 200. It hasn't basically traded under there since the COVID crash in 2020, right? Yep. Um, so coming back to that was not a surprise, I would say, but trading meaningfully below it for an extended period of time starts to be, for some people, sort of a bull versus bear market signal. But that said, I, I don't have it in front of me, but I almost can guarantee that if you pulled up RSI right now, that because I know it was oversold in January on the daily, uh, that if you pulled up RSI right now, you would find that there is probably printing potentially massive bullish divergence because I know that it's not nearly as oversold now. Now, that, that's an idea. It's not something that's confirmed. But this, to me, is starting to say, look, this is near a key support. I mean, look left to September, October, right? Look where we bounced in January, beginning of February. We're, we're right in line with that, right? If you take, yeah, take that horizontal, basically, and that's sort of a key support. It's a puke level to buy, but you'd be buying support. You don't sell support, right? So, um, yeah, basically exactly that area right there. And so to me, this is saying, yeah, it's pretty ugly, but like maybe the market's going to react to Russia, Ukraine news. I don't know. I, like, do you sitting here in America really feel like you need to sell stocks that you bought for 20 years from now because there might be a war in Ukraine, Russia? I don't. Right. I mean, so like, it's just not, but looking at that chart, I would say that we're at support and probably going to potentially print bullish divergence. I'm not saying I would be rushing to buy, but if that did happen, meaning that RSI makes a very clear higher low price makes a clear lower low, which it is there. If you pulled that up on a line chart, you would see that it's trading lower than the closes of all of those late January uh, candles. Mm -hmm. Um, and if you see RSI start to head back up and price make that lower low, that to me is a massive buy signal. I think I still think that markets have been generally overreacting. Um, now, I'm not saying inflation is not an issue. I think it is. I'm not saying money printing is an issue, but that's not uh, pretending that those things matter in the way that we think they matter is kind of nonsensical. I know that doesn't make sense. But I can explain that, right? Inflation is a problem. But the market doesn't react to inflation. The market re reacts to what Jerome Powell says about inflation. And those are two very, very, very separate things. So you go back to December and Jerome Powell says, we're going to uh, hike rates three times, right? And so then he calls up his buddies at Goldman and JP Morgan and Morgan Stanley. I'm not telling this actually happened, but this is how I like to envision it. He says, hey, dudes, I said three. Can you guys go ahead and uh, put out something that says you're pricing in five or six? Right. And then Goldman prices in five or six rate hikes. And then Jerome Powell comes back and he says, Hey, we're going to do four. And the market goes, Great news. We were pricing in five and things go up. Right. And then that's a dog and pony show between the banks and what Jerome Powell says. So is money printing a problem? Yes. But is the market reacting to that? No, it's reacting to what the Fed does and says. So I am not as massively bearish and pessimistic, I think, as other people because. Also, just remember, guys, there's an election coming in November. The stock market dies, so do the incumbents. I think you hit the head on the nail there. It is not what the Fed does so much as what they say they're going to do. Correct. Is, the stock market is so reactionary, but it also attempts to price in future events based on present day information. 
makes it very difficult to trade when you only have certain information. I myself, while I personally actually don't pay attention to oversold and overbought, that's probably an indicator that I could use a lot more and be better at. The thing that I'm noticing here is a steady decline in volume at the bottom right of the chart kind of tells me that the selling pressure is dropping as well. So to your point, I do actually think that so long as we get a reversal, you can close even at this level, making a new low, fine. We can weirdly call it a, a double bottom if we so choose. I'd actually prefer to see it go a little bit lower. I want to make a real new low here. If yeah, not, sweep it. Exactly. Yeah. But if not, let it reverse higher. I don't see a world where we break over this 50-day moving average on the heels of increase in Fed rate, uh, increase in interest rates coming in the next couple of weeks. Um, right. I don't know. I Not don't know. in the next couple of weeks. I agree with that. But Bloomberg, I believe it was, but they printed a really incredible chart and article. If you actually take a look historically at Fed tightening cycles when the Fed has gone hawkish, the market performs exceptionally well. It's happened 12 times since the 1950s, and 11 of those times, the market has reacted exceptionally well. The caveat being the one time was the early 70s, but the caveat being that it generally goes down right at first when they absorb the news. And then once everyone calms the fuck down and realizes it's not that big of a deal, people start buying stuff again, because what are you going to buy? It's like acting like stocks are going to zero or whatever. It's acting like people aren't making money that they need to still invest somewhere. Right. And people are still going to buy stocks. I'm not. So 11 of 12 times it's gone up massively. Every time that it's been in a election cycle, particularly midterms, which is what we're getting, you basically see a really bad first six months, right? So you have the three months of the beginning of the year when they start talking about tightening. Then you have the next quarter when they actually start doing the tightening and things are a bit shaky. But then coming into the three months before the election and the six months after, the market's absolutely ripped. Absolutely ripped because people are about to vote. And they make sure that the market doesn't die for three months before the election, and then things go up. I'm sorry, it's manipulated. That's why I laugh when people are like, Bitcoin's manipulated. I'm like, why? Because some dude with more money than you dumped on you? That's not manipulated. That's just you need to get richer to trade against these guys, right? Unfortunately, and so do I. But this is manipulation. The stock market is a complete sham. It's a complete sham, right? It's completely manipulated and controlled. Not, not to interrupt you, but I, I completely agree. I like to call the stock market the legalized casino. Quick reminder for those who are on Twitter spaces, feel free to pop over to, to our YouTube channel pinned at the top where we're going over and dissecting the SPY chart right now. And another article that I actually read over the weekend, to your point, Scott, from Investors Business Daily, where they broke down historically when the Fed raised rates by 50 basis points or more, what the reaction of the market was. And it was very interesting where essentially the two weeks before those rate hikes and the two weeks prior, the market was essentially in a bull market, uh, bear market. However, outside of that two weeks on the tail end, the markets consistently saw a nice swing up and reversal. So yeah. I personally, I'm keeping an eye very closely on how the market's going to react leading up to these rate hikes. I'm expecting at least 50 basis points, if not more. I would actually prefer to see more. And then beyond that, how the market reacts leading into it, I think I will start buying on the tail end of that two-week window. Yeah, I agree. With a very, very tight stop personally. And if it rips, it rips. If not, we didn't time it right, and we'll figure out another entry point. But that's just yeah, my I, I already started seeing takes today, mainstream media, that if Russia invades Ukraine... The Fed would be forced to be less hawkish and start talking about stimulus again because markets would not be as strong as they were when they started talking hawkish and we might get more money printing in stimulus, right? So there's always a narrative, trust me, there's always a narrative where you're just on the brink of printing a bit more money and, and, and getting more stimulus. And so they can spin these, the same event can be spinned bullishly depending on uh, how you look at it. And by the it's, way, like the fact that Bitcoin dumping, like because people are afraid of inflation and now it dumps because the government actually admits that inflation is a pro. I mean, the whole thing makes absolutely no sense to me. Scott, on that note, real quick, um, what, what do you think about UBI? What do you think about universal basic income? Are we headed in that direction through some form of like never ending stimulus? It's been a minute now, but a lot of people see that on the horizon. I was just wondering what you think. I would, I would hate to see that have to happen. 
You know, um, it's it's kind of it's actually it's a, it's a that's a tough question because if you zoom out, the world is not really inflation isn't the bigger problem that they're trying to fight. It's deflation, right? So all all of the they, we talk about inflation being a problem, but they're trying to to fight the deflationary forces of technology, right? I mean, you look at literally anything in the world. Look at the price of a TV 10 years ago versus the price of a TV now, right? Way cheaper. Technology gets cheaper. Technology replaces jobs. The natural order of the world is deflationary because of technology, right? People, but in theory, that should mean that people need to earn less money they need to work less because all goods are cheaper and you have this sort of deflationary utopia. That's like Jeff, Bo- Jeff Booth, if you've ever, ever read The Price of Power, right? That whole idea. The problem is we're so far gone in the other direction, you can never get there without a depression the likes of the world has, has never seen, right? There's no way to get to that place. The perfect world wouldn't be where you need people to give people stimulus. The perfect world would be where people don't really need to earn that much to live they unlock their time and then they use that time for entrepreneurial ventures and you go through a epic renaissance the likes of the world has never seen that's what would happen if you could get there in my humble opinion right that's what would happen if you could get there imagine if everything was so cheap because you let deflation happen which they had a chance to do in 2008 we would have I, I would argue actually if they had not done the bailouts at this point and of course hindsight is 2020 if there had been no stimulus and bailouts in 2008 if zombie companies had been allowed to die the last 12 years would have been horrible maybe for the first six or seven years but i think at this point we would probably be in a better place on average per person than we are now with this hyperinflationary environment so at some point that pain is going to have to happen to get there but imagine a world where you worked 10 hours a week and that was enough for you to pay for everything you wanted in your life and you had 30 hours to do whatever you wanted. And that's what it would look like. So UBI is not going to get you there, right? UBI is just a Band-Aid on a bigger problem because you're going to give people $1,000. That is more money printing and more stimulus, which causes the price of things to go up further than what you've just been given. And you're the hamster on the on the wheel that's trying to catch up and you never get there. So like, in theory, if there was a world where you didn't have to print more to give people free money, sure, but the, the, that money doesn't come out of thin air. Well, actually, it does. That's the, that's the problem. Right, exactly. It's more of a psychological fix than any kind of real monetary tool. I mean, thankfully, I, I think due to Bitcoin, we actually have a chance at moving toward that future which you described and which jeff booth describes where your time holds value you don't have to work as much you can lengthen your production process as an individual and enter these kind of virtual marketplaces you know seamlessly and protect your value through in in something stable like bitcoin which i I know sounds crazy like well, in a world like that, you would have Bitcoin probably would be stable, right? In, right? in that world, Bitcoin would probably slowly increase in value, you know, and would be a legitimate store of value. You wouldn't get uh, the kind of uh, delicious volatility that traders love that we have now. Um, but yeah, I mean, that would be a better world. The problem is there's no way to get there without absolute destruction. But yes, in theory, I think we all love the idea. Like I said, in 2008, if they had failed, we would have had a depression. Would have had a depression, but by now, probably years ago, we would have been out of it. And if that's also supposing that they would have learned the lessons. The crazy thing is that like the people in power doing the same shit they did to cause the last collapse. So it's not like anyone learned a lesson, right? So you, uh, assuming we could get to that world also assumes that we could stay there without the people in power doing the same stupid things that they've done over and over again to, to blow things up. Right. And instead of people, you know, just buying houses on a whim and getting you've got cheap credit in the form of basically credit cards, like everyone I know is getting (laughs) multiple credit card offers a day on top of everything else. It's just it's a very strange environment. It's it's not going to end well. I do want to bring it back now outside of the UBI conversation, but I think a the news conversation is warranted. We've talked about it a little bit, the Russia-Ukraine stuff. We talk a lot on this show about the effects of Russia's decisions in regards to either invading 
uh, Ukraine. We talk about their decision to now potentially legalize uh, Bitcoin as some sort of currency there. We've also had a conversation about the fact that the Ukrainian defense group, if you will, essentially is collecting donations through Bitcoin. Um, we're seeing Bitcoin start to actually populate that conversation around that side of the world. Is there something, a decision that you're looking at that you think could trigger a next leg up? I know that you're not a news guy. I know that that's not really what you're paying attention to. But do you think an event in that side of the world, given the climate right now, could trigger something? Well, I'm not a news guy, but I definitely definitely believe in catalysts, right? Like I'm not trading on the news, but like MicroStrategy bought Bitcoin. The market went up tremendously because institutions were adopting Bitcoin. There are big things that can happen. Spot Bitcoin ETF would be a huge catalyst. That's a, it's news, but it's a fundamental event that changes the market. So something like that, or clarity on regulation saying that most of these things are not securities and giving us a clear path forward for innovation in the United States. That would be a massively bullish event that could be a catalyst. As for Russia, Ukraine, here's my take on going back, just a general take on the news, then I'll talk about that. Remember when, what was the name of the ship? Everrise was stuck in the Suez and it was supposed to end the supply chain for the entire planet. We were all supposed to die. Stock market was going to go to zero fire. Nothing happened. Evergrande, since we're doing Evers, Evergrande collapsing in China, the whole world is destroyed, systemic crisis, everything's going to zero, nothing happened. Guys, in the last, even just the last few years, we've had 20 things that were supposed to end all markets and none of them did. So if I'm just betting on the odds, that's why I'm dismissive of all news. I'm not saying a war in Ukraine and Russia isn't a big deal. It's a human for human beings. It's a very big deal. It's a news story worth tracking. I'm just saying that I've learned not to react to all of these news cycles. Now, so that's why in general, I don't generally react to news because none of it ever plays out. One of them will, and I'll be wrong. Okay, so I was wrong one out of 20 times. Fine. Okay, that'd be a good hit rate if, I, if I'm trading, right? And so, but if we're talking about a catalyst on that side of the world, well, Ukraine did just legalize Bitcoin this week, right? And having nothing to do with this conflict, obviously. So that was huge. I think that uh, Russia... I mean, Russia, they're the new China, right? It's like we're banning it one week, we're adopting it one week. But I think, you know, Putin generally is going to win over the central bankers. You know, they're probably in the gulag already for saying that they were going to ban uh, Bitcoin in the first place. And so, like, I think a massive adoption level event in Russia would probably, and listen, people maybe don't want to hear this, but that would be bullish for Bitcoin, right? And Bitcoin's not going to play politics, right? And so, like, you, if you're a Bitcoiner, you can't be mad when, and I'm not saying you don't like Russia, but you can't be mad when a country you don't like happens to be the one that uh, adopts it or moves in that direction. And generally, if you're into a nascent technology that is a bit of a protest or raging against the machine, so to speak, you're going to be on the wrong side sometimes, right? I had Mark, Mark Yusko is one of my favorite people. And he said to me, you know, his whole career, Every time he's invested in something, people are like, you're always on the side of the criminals. Like you're the, you're the, you're, it's the worst. How do you live with yourself? He's like, yeah, because I invested early in the internet and it was only for porn. And I invested early in Bitcoin and it was only for criminals on Silk Road. But that's where these things start, unfortunately, you know? And so, yeah, if you were Russia or Ukraine, not to compare them, but like North Korea or Iran or one of these places, of course, Bitcoin makes sense if you're trying to, get around sanctions or trying to, you know, uh, save your own economy. So that might be the places where these seeds are planted. But I, I can't see an immediate event that would send Bitcoin price absolutely mooning out of Russia and Ukraine, because we've already seen them kind of say in Russia, hey, we're going to probably legalize, regulate and do it. Unless it was like, hey, uh, they've added, you know, $10 billion of Bitcoin to their, you know, the central bank has uh, replaced their gold stores with Bitcoin stores. Oh, maybe. You know, but uh, I don't know. No, I mean, that makes sense. It goes back to the argument that I always like to present, which is the countries that are furthest away from the money printer have the most to gain by going onto a Bitcoin standard, while those closest to the money printer and those who have benefited from the current fiat system we have stand to lose the most by switching out of USD to anything, whether it be Bitcoin, go back to the gold standard. I love to speak about my homeland, Iran. So you brought it up and I will go down this rabbit hole with you. I know that there are different attempts at setting up mining rigs, but 
Iran is also consciously aware that if they have too much of a hash rate that is exposed coming out of Iran, that there's potential for an attack, there's a potential to have stricter legislation come out against Bitcoin. So they actually attempt to, and I hope I don't dox them by saying this, but they essentially use VPNs to take their hash rate and they give it to other countries. So it looks like Kazakhstan has an extra five or 10% when in reality that capacity is coming out of Iran. That country has seen a hundred percent inflation in two years now. Right. It is mind boggling when you actually stop and think about some of the legislation that gets passed there and why it's such a necessity. Um, it was brought to my attention that what they use in their cash reserves is a basket of currencies like many other countries. But when you stop and really pause to think about, okay, you are dealing with inflation in your own right because of the money printing your country is going through. Couple that with the currency that is backing your dollar is inflation is inflating, not deflating. So you're now double dipping this inflation. What do you think could happen if a country like Iran or a country like North Korea came out and was like, hey, we're on a Bitcoin standard. We actually are now the largest holder of Bitcoin in the world. What do you anticipate a response by the West or the US in particular to be something like that? Yeah, that would be a little scary. <laughs> you know, I think that, uh, you know, Russia adopting Bitcoin probably put, puts the pressure on the United States to do something rational, I would think, right? That, that um, just to compete. And I think that, China's ban probably was somewhat bullish for United States approach because was the United States going to do what China did? Right. That, that, that doesn't seem like the reasonable way to approach it. I, I honestly think any nation state adoption would be bullish for, for Bitcoin. Maybe, maybe I'm wrong, but I, I think that, you know, listen, a lot of people didn't like El Salvador very much. You know, uh, before they adopted Bitcoin as legal tender. And, you know, obviously we all love anyone who comes around to Bitcoin, but there were people who had, I, I, I was not on my radar really, but concerns about the government in El Salvador. It's one of the most violent nations, obviously in Central and South America. They've got their problems, but we're certainly all cheering for them to have success with uh, Bitcoin adoption as, as legal tender because it's the first example of somebody going against the behemoths of the World Bank and the IMF and the United States and saying, listen, we don't need your predatory loans and we don't care what you have to say. It's a not, I'm not saying that El Salvador is Iran, but it's a similar situation to one of those countries coming out and saying that they're on the Bitcoin standard. Listen, it's a little different because El Salvador's currency is the dollar, right? So if you have a currency that is not the dollar, and can be manipulated to where, I mean, the United States would destroy a country that was not on the dollar that tried to adopt Bitcoin as legal tender. Nobody wants to hear that, but that's what we do, right? I mean, the United States goes in and basically devalues the currency of any country that uh, dares, dares refute us or, or go against us. There's a long history of those things. They can't do that to El Salvador because their currency is the dollar. So El Salvador is in a unique position to be able to actually make Bitcoin legal tender. I, I love that explanation and thank you for the clarification there. I mean, I, I personally am a big fan of Bukele. I know that there are different degrees of what he does in different realms of his job. However, I think some of his decisions in regard to Bitcoin have helped not only push his own country forward, but have helped push Bitcoin forward for a net positive. Um, I also align with you in saying all news is good news. There's no such thing as bad press when it comes to Bitcoin, whether it's China banning mining or whatever news you want to hear, India taxing it up to wazoo. Um, we do have a little bit more time left and I want to dive back into some charts while I have you. Sure. I rarely have a chart guy with me. Um, <laughs> I love Bitcoin adjacent equities. Uh, I'm going to keep calling it despite everyone not loving that name. Is there a Bitcoin e equity that you are a fan of right now or that you're keeping an eye on? Uh, are we talking about like proxy mm -hmm. investments for Bitcoin, micro strategy, mm -hmm. Coinbase, miners, et cetera? Yeah. Okay. Well, I mean, I am not a fan of Coinbase as a company, I don't use it, but I'm a big investor and continue to buy every dip on Coinbase stock, just because I believe it'll be one of the most important and largest companies in the world down the road. So uh, I don't need a chart to tell me that if Bitcoin reaches mainstream adoption, that Coinbase is going to likely be leading that charge to some degree. 
So I, I like Coinbase a lot. I think that uh, mining stocks like Riot, Riot and Marathon um, did exceptionally well early and then just got absolutely destroyed. So they seem like a value to me now. I like that line on Coinbase you're drawing, by the way. Um, yeah, I mean, I went ahead and drew this. I mean, literally the first few things that stand out to me when I look at this chart is the hard downtrend. You're able to really quickly see a few points that touch here, a nice break. And unfortunately, this is a very consistent theme that I think has been happening in a lot of charts. You can break a downtrend line and these are great buy opportunities. However, it doesn't guarantee you're going to go up. And this downside gap is a very bad pressure right here. And we're going to see a lot of resistance, I think, at 220. I don't disagree. Bitcoin hitting a new all-time high will literally lead everything from Coinbase to every mining stock to new highs as well. I, however, am a little hesitant because I think Coinbase is foolishly, in my opinion, trying to distance themselves from Bitcoin at large and trying to be more all-encompassing to the broader crypto market. Right. Um, I don't know if you think that that's going to affect them in the long term, or if you think that regardless, investors are just going to view Coinbase as like a Bitcoin proxy. I don't know what your thoughts are on that. I, I think it will detach from being a Bitcoin proxy and, and just become more of like the, you know, it's hard. MicroStrategy likes to view themselves as the spot Bitcoin ETF, but I think that Coinbase may behave better sort of in that manner. But like Coinbase has come out and said, basically, we wanted to list everything. Like if it's listable, we're going to list it. Not only are we going to list Solana, we're going to list the coins in the Solana ecosystem, right? And so I think that they have the customer share in the United States. I think that they have the bulk of the institutional investment coming in through their platform. That's where MicroStrategy buys their Bitcoin, right? Um, and so I just think that there's no way that they're not a winner if just by sheer virtue of, of name recognition and market share, if you believe that Bitcoin is going to continue up. But I, I also think that there will be a time when Bitcoin's price can drop and Coinbase can perform well. Right? I think we're still in a very early time right now where these are acting sort of like leverage plays on Bitcoin to some degree. Like look at any mining stock. I mean, it's like Bitcoin goes down 10, they go down 20. You know what I mean? And it's, it, they just get wrecked, absolutely destroyed, uh, which is why I think that they're now really, really cheap. You know, And... Uh, so I, I, I like most of the sort of Bitcoin proxies, the ones I don't like. And listen, I'm an investor in Valkyrie, right? And so they're one of the two uh, first Bitcoin futures ETFs. I just think, I mean, they offered what they were allowed to offer, but I think in principle, uh, a futures ETF is really trash product. That's the one thing that like, I probably would say maybe I don't want to buy right now, you know? Well, that's the miners ETF. Look how wrecked that got, right? I haven't even looked at that chart, but uh, I was talking about uh, BTF, which is their futures, but yeah, they have the mining ETF as well, which would have been amazing if they had gotten BTFD, which is what they tried, but they had to settle for BTF, unfortunately. BTF's chart is even uglier than the, uh, we're going to make it chart for their mining ETF. I mean, as we see more of these ETFs get populated into the publicly traded markets, we talk a lot about, hey, Bitcoin is supposed to be sort of your hedge against inflation. It's supposed to be your hedge against these markets. However, we're, we're kind of seeing them trade in tandem. Do you think the introduction of more and more ETFs is leading to that? Or how do we sort of decouple that as well? All of these like exotic ETFs that are suboptimal, that are trying to find creative ways, metaverse ETFs and DeFi ETFs, and but that none of them actually invest in metaverse or DeFi, right? Of course, <laughs> it's companies that are listed on the stock market that might have some sort of superficial relationship with DeFi, right? I think that uh, they're the best we can do right now, and that's why they're happening, but they will all be completely eliminated once we get a Bitcoin spot, if I should say we get a Bitcoin spot ETF. And that's the product that we need. The thing is like, you have to remember all of these, yeah, they trade sort of similar to Bitcoin, but they're stocks, right? They're stocks. They're going to be a value valued in a different way. They're going to be reporting their earnings. And if shit goes really bad in the stock market and Bitcoin reacts favorably, these might still do really badly because they're stocks and the stock market does poorly. So like anyone who thinks that buying Coinbase is the same as buying Bitcoin, it's not. Right. It's a it's it's a proxy. I'm buying on the idea of what Bitcoin might do, but it's not as predictable. 
anyone who's like, if you have the ability to buy spot Bitcoin and like, there are people who can't, who have to buy a stock, right? Institutional investor can't get it past the risk management or you work at a hedge fund. They don't allow you to buy certain things, but you just buy spot Bitcoin and hold it. Right. I mean, they, they, none of these are a replacement for the real thing. Everyone wants a piece of the pie and there are only 21 million pieces. So we got to figure out different ways. I, I do worry that unfortunately we are allowing the casino to get its claws and hands into Bitcoin. Sure. Um, we see there's a weird level of protection in that where I personally now believe you are more likely to see Bitcoin go to a million dollars than you are to see it go to zero simply because Wall Street doesn't like to lose. And Wall Street will cry to mommy and daddy in Washington, D.C. and say, hey, fix this. I, I lost too much money. I pay you too much money to let me lose this much so, to figure it out, fix this for us. So I do believe that it is helpful to a degree. However, I still worry that all of these offerings will cause essentially a glorified casino to to join our the glorified casino to implement Bitcoin as far as one of its latest offerings, if you will. Yeah, I think that's fair. We have uh, about like five or six more minutes and I want to give you the opportunity to sort of touch on or bring up anything that we haven't had a chance yet to discuss um, before I sort of tell everyone where to find you so that they can hunt you down after this conversation. I mean, I wouldn't say there's anything that I'm dying to discuss. I just think at times like these when people are seemingly depressed, the market is down, that you have to just zoom out and chill fuck out, man. Like there's so much anger and hate and I get it. That's because people obviously are, are overexposed probably to the market. It's, you know, the old meme of uh, only invest money you can afford to lose, which is the dumbest meme in the world because nobody can afford to lose any money, right? But <laughs> um, that, that I think they should say only invest money you can afford not to touch for a while, hopefully, right? <laughs> um, but is that don't, don't allow yourself to start making emotional decisions based on things that you read or analysis that might or might not be true. The reality is that that Bitcoin you just said, it's more likely to go to a million than zero. I think the Bitcoin going to zero argument, I haven't heard it anymore. It's off the table finally. I think it's gone. It's dead. And there's no way it's going to zero. And there's no way that it's not eventually going up. You just have to be willing to like, you know, the trial by fire, you have to be willing to experience the pain to get the uh, gain at the end of the tunnel. But like, let's just like zoom out and think about what's happened, right? In 2017, if a mainstream media source said the word Bitcoin, price would go up 15% in 30 seconds, right? It was such a nascent and immature market. Nobody was talking about it. It was barely a thing. Of course, we all thought institutions were coming in 2017 because we were stupid. Like Tesla was gonna buy a billion dollars of Bitcoin and put it on a ledger in a safe or something, right? There weren't even custodians at the time. But think about where we've come in that time, right? Through that entire bear market. Now Bitcoin is literally like in the stock ticker on the bottom of every mainstream media source, right? We're in the news every single day. First, they dismiss you, then they, you know, pay attention, then they fight you, whatever, you know, meme you like. Like, did you ever think that we would have the president of the United States in 2022 issuing an executive order on cryptocurrency ever? Did you think that Biden's biggest, biggest bill, the infrastructure bill at the time would be frozen by for five days because of one sentence about cryptocurrency, even though the crypto community didn't even have a PAC or a lobbyist or anyone to fight just because the community was outraged and a few Congress people and senators talked about it. Guys, we are on the big stage now. No matter what happens, it's going to go up and everybody, everybody wants to get their money into this, right? We had $30 billion of venture capital come into crypto last year, and we've probably already had 10 in the beginning of 2020. Like if, you, if you're a VC, if you're an institution, listen, so what's interesting is that at the beginning of 2021, I would have told you all that money was coming into Bitcoin. We had Michael Saylor and everyone was going to put it on their balance sheet. Well, they ended up actually really wanting to invest in Web3. So <laughs> I know that's not the narrative that people want to hear, but all the venture capital is going into the picks and shovels and trying to find the next platform. But the bottom line is there's way too big of money in this space now for it to fail. 
You just need to zoom out and be patient. It will go up. Billionaires, the Bill Millers and the Drucken Millers and the Paul Tudor Jones, these guys don't buy an asset that's going to be regulated away or banned or go to zero. I don't think you understand. Like These guys call their buddy at the SEC or wherever and say, so what are you guys saying about Bitcoin? Oh, we're fine. Okay, great. Right? These companies are not making decisions that can put their entire company at risk on an asset that's going to be banned. So just, just think rationally about the stories that you hear about Bitcoin. All of it, like I said about News Cycle, almost all of it ends up being a big nothing burger and meaningless at the end of the day. So like if it suits your personality, the best thing to do is probably just dollar cost average, buy and hold and wait a while. And I think you'll be very, very happy, right? You don't need to trade this market to become wealthy. You just don't. So I know that was a bit of a rambling uh, end of the hour kind of thing, but I just, you know, when you see how many people are so upset and effective and all the negativity and you know that if they just wait a few months, it'll be fine. And then they'll laugh at the way that they were reacting. Just try to take a deep breath and chill. It's going to be fine. I love that. It's that rant that we've uh, seen. Or your rant is the equivalent of the meme that we've seen circulate <laughs> of Bitcoin at 40K in 2021, celebrating Bitcoin at 40K yep. in 2022. Depression. It, it's just keep calm and zoom out. I love that. that. That's the motto for today, guys. Keep calm and zoom out. Scott, where can our viewers uh, find you and hear more about what you're working on and what you're investing in? Well, first of all, I think uh, I looked at the chat and people think I'm the wolf of Wall Street. And there's people over there talking about how uh, (laughs) I'm the scammer that went to jail and was played by Leonardo DiCaprio. So as cool as it would be to be stumbling out of my Lamborghini drunkenly in the front of a country club, that was not me. Um, So don't look for me there. Uh, I, at Scott Melker on Twitter, S-C-O-T-T-M-E-L-K-E-R, basically everything is branched out from there. I mean, you know, when, when, when people ask, I say, just find me on Twitter, check out the podcast. I think those are the two probably best places to start the Wolf of Wall Street's podcast, not the Wolf of Wall Street podcast. It's unfortunately (laughs) close name. Um, and that's it. Yeah, that's it. That's where you can find me. Hey, Scott, are you going to be, are you going to be coming to Bitcoin 2022? I'll be there Come down to our conference. Yeah, I'll oh, be there. Yeah. I was there last, I was there last year. I'm glad you guys are moving it to the convention center. Uh, we need more space. It's time. <laughs> yeah, it's time, man. We're going to, we're going to sell it out 35,000 yeah. plus Bitcoiners and be excited to catch up with you there, man. Yeah, I would absolutely love to do that. I actually don't have like a fixed plan of anything I'm doing there. I just know that I need to be there again, you know, to, to hang out, probably take advantage of the opportunity to uh, shoot a whole lot of podcasts and you know everybody's going to be there and and try to get people in in person i I really miss having these conversations in person you know it's really yeah yeah as as amazing as zoom is like uh it's not the same as sitting with someone and and having a face-to-face conversation so i'm looking forward to doing a lot more of that with the podcast and hopefully while i'm in miami so would definitely love to connect with you guys yeah